Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to a very society ruined guy for the show. Not at all. Well, that's it. This is great. This is a very special on the tape podcast. Can't believe this is what you call a bonus drop guy. It's a, it's a bonus drop, but it's a, a collab bonus drop. Did I say and that? We've correctly? done this collab before, so we're here with the compound and friends. No, 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 no. Oof! It's just, <laughs> see, we we that, had this conversation. The pound. It's just the compound is with us. Yeah, because they didn't bring their friends. They didn't bring you're, you're the friends. friends. All right, so, so that is Josh Brown. He is the CEO of Ritholtz love, Wealth Management. Love, love Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat. With Michael Batnick, who is a senior managing director and partner. And regional vice president. And regional vice president of Ritholtz. But, but can I say something? When yeah. you've made it in life, yeah. you become a single name. Batnick is that He's just person. Batnick. He's just, just Batnick, Batnick right? Yeah. Like McLovin. Sorry. Like you that. One of his things, he doesn't like Mike either. If you say if you were gonna say Michael Batnick, say Mike. Don't say Mike. I don't Batnick. like Mike Batnick. I don't he mind people like, call me Mike, but he Mike, like Batnick, Mike Batnick. Yeah, Mike Batnick. It doesn't me. flow like yeah. Michael Batnick Thank does. Yeah, 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 no, it doesn't. All right, but here's one of the things. Sorry, Dan. Okay, no, no. I mean, yeah. listen, it's your podcast well, too. No, just, All right, so, so we did a pod together. It was in mid December. Um, it was your guys' idea. We were flattered that you invited us to do it. We did it for No Kid Hungry. We yeah, raised yeah. a bunch of money for them. We did it live at the Nasdaq. Um, it, it was amazing. Super um, bearish. People are bearish. Yeah, uh, I know. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about the markets. We're going to talk about what you guys. Um, what a great event, though! Like really all was, your right? fans came out. All yeah. our fans came out, and like for the right reason. Like yeah. everybody is into what we do. Yeah, it was that was, it was a cool. predominantly a compound and friends crowd. I would think. Did you think so? There were a few fast money. We overlap. Fans, we overlap. I think. I think there's a lot of overlap. Well, I, listen, I want to get into what you guys do so well. We're going to do that um, in a bit, and and I know that Josh and Michael. You know, I, I know you guys met because he was one of the first financial bloggers that I recall. Okay, um, he was obviously one of the first guys to just take FinTwit by storm. You've done that. You've been blogging. You have your own podcast, <laughs> Animal Spirits, with Ben Carlson. Can I say something to you before we get into this? Yeah. 
I think I've told you this in the past, but if I didn't, I'll say I'll say thank you publicly. You were the first person on TV to mention me from something from some research that I did. Stop it. Was, it it was 2013, that? and you gave me a ton of motivation. Wow. It was a shot in the arm to keep oh, going. That's cool. Thank I mean, you. listen, I, I've been reading you wow. for, for that long. Well I've been, known I, I've been reading you, and 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 you guys are so good at what you do. And it's funny, and I'll just say this, and God, I'd love to get your take on this. You know, we do really different things. You know what I mean? Like, I think when I, and I listen to the compound friends and I listen to animal spirits and I've been reading you guys. Um, what we do is a little different. It might have to do with like fast money guy. Is that a bit like a little bit of it? I mean, it's kind of a hot take machine, if you will. And I know that, you know, maybe you have a different take. You were the original fast money guy yeah, dating crazy. back to 06. Well, I mean, our show, by definition, it gets sound bitey, but we've set it up that way to make it move because, as you know, business television historically can be boring as shit. Yeah. So instead of getting all wonky and going down rabbit holes, which people have done for years, we decided to make it sort of fast-paced. I mean, the name of the show never really tickled my fancy, but if you listen to it, it what? is it on, moves the on the tape. Fast money. Oh, fast CNBC's money. Okay. fast money. Yeah. Beyond the tape, by the way, that was a Danny Moses, Dan Nathan uh, collab. No, that was that say. was all. But Danny are, Moses. what you guys do so well is you don't have a lot of time to make your point. What do you have? Thirty seconds. Yeah. We move pretty quick. Well, you know, just you know, and that was one of the ideas of why we wanted to do the podcast because we obviously have a lot to say, and we're going to shut up in a minute. But it's also probably one of the ways you're never going to shut up. No, I know. Either Before you guys had the opportunity, let's say to, to be on TV, Josh, you were writing a thousand words a day, breaking down some sort of situation as it relates to the markets or the economy. Yeah. So, talk to us a, a, a little bit about you know the evolution of your media. It started with early blogging, and then it went to early social media sort of stuff, and obviously that brought you to TV and now you guys have a two killer well, podcast. A couple things about TV that I learned like in the first couple of months of, so my first appearance ever was December, 2010 on fast money, but I was, a I was a remote. I was in 30 rock from a camera and you guys were in times square. Cause I think they thought like bloggers were unstable, <laughs> like dangerous. Well, well they, they were not wrong. It. So I didn't get, I didn't get a face to face <laughs> appearance with you guys at first. How little they know. Um, yeah. But the first thing Barry uh, Barry Ritholtz is like, listen, here's the deal. They're going to ask you all these questions, blah, blah, blah. They have a whole script printed out. But here's the thing. Don't worry about it. Just say the thing you want to say. Whether it answers their question or not, it doesn't matter because the whole thing's over in 20 seconds. They go to commercial. Nobody remembers. It's a, it's almost like uh, nobody remembers if you answer the question or not. The only thing they remember is if you had camera presence, if you crushed it, Right. It's an old thing. Uh, people don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. That's TV. TV is like somebody could ask you about interest rates. You end up saying something about these are the three stocks I like right now. If you do it well, no one's going to be like, hey, you didn't answer the question. Because there's no time to give a shit. But that, changed, that changed, though, with guys like Batnick, okay, um, you know, with a Twitter account who's watching this stuff. And then all of a sudden, that did change about, like, 13 or 14. What do you mean? Where all of a sudden you're getting trolled for actually, something that you get trolled actually, way, though. You get trolled I, no matter what. Yeah. Guy, I trolled Guy <laughs> in probably 2011 <laughs> about what the fuck was uh, his stock. And, and, and Guy deactivated For no reason other than, <laughs> yeah, no, no. No, he responded. He went dark for four years. He responded. Years. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Doesn't matter. Oh, he loves the trolls. No, I, I get a kick at I try to respond. You know, it's funny. I think it's, and Josh can speak to this. I find it really disingenuous of people that just retweet 
Josh, we love you so much. You know, we love you. You got to do great work. I mean, it's easy to do that, but it's lame. Nobody's it's lame. Doing that. Literally, nobody. I will tell you. I mean, I engage with the trolls because I think it it shows a different side. And you know, I think you can handle them one of three ways. You can escalate, which I typically don't do. You can ignore, which is sort of lame. Or you could try to humanize yourself and engage in a thoughtful and an interesting way. And I found that to be a good strategy. Now it doesn't work all the time, but you know it's been an interesting. You want to get rid of the trolls? You get, really want to? Sure. Do I want to Here's get rid of do. them? Just immediately that. start DM, DMing them like sex stuff. <laughs> Just immediately does. <laughs> Like, no matter who it is, what they say, how old or young they are, Wait, male, like Brett, female, Brett just, just immediately, hey, what's your phone number? I want to I want, I want, hang this weekend. Lots of just God. immediately. They, they don't is even. Is that a they strategy that works for just you? Picks. you know just what? start saying them like, you know hey, this is me on vacation six months ago. Just fucking bathing suit picks. Immediately, it's over. You know, you know what guy did recently, and I think it's really interesting. So he, he does combat with the trolls online. Why do you but, do that? No, no. I'm not sure. It's. I think it's a. Did you ever get a flaw. good? Did you ever get a result that you were happy with? I don't know if there is a result you can be happy right. with. I mean, it's like you're battling these individual battles that are going on all day. And for me, it's sort of it's a counterpuncher. It's like a boxing mentality. Like they threw the first punch, and now I'm going to counterpunch and see if I can shut them up. And typically, it works. But I don't know the answer to your. But didn't question. anybody ever say to you like, never punch down? Well, for me, that's hard to do. No, come on. I, when I, I don't mean like one person is higher than another, but literally, if somebody no, is saying something to you, you're not saying something to anybody else. So like no, by fair. definition, if you spend your life like yelling at people on TV. So you called me once. You called me on the phone. Yeah, this I told you stop. five years ago. And I was, I think it was more about Trump stuff in general, but you're like just. Yeah, you weren't being trolled. You were like losing your shit over Trump stuff. Yeah. Or people. No, it was great. It was great advice. And I, I, just I mean, said, yeah, I said, dude. Yeah. Yeah. None of this, A, is a good look for you. Yeah. And B, it can't be making you happy. So just, but to Guy's point, it kind of was making me happy a little bit. You know what I mean? No, Guy gets a kick out of it. Although if you didn't like it, you wouldn't. You but would you know stop. what he did? So we have we we have a lot of people, as you guys probably do, just email us all the time. Mm -hmm. And and ninety eight percent of nice. the emails yeah. is really yeah. nice. So we had a guy the other morning. I love these guys. You guys probably we get hear it all the time. We get amazing emails and written letters. Yeah. Yes, and when we people like I've been in the markets for forty years and I've been listening to you guys, you know, stuff That's like awesome. that. Guy actually called one of these guys. Said, "Hey, if you ever feel like calling," and I just thought that was like once you connect with somebody like that, you. You have a fan for life, yeah. and they think you're authentic. You know? Well, the guy's name is Dave. He's from Oregon. He just turned 70. Yeah. And it's interesting because he texted me this morning at 8 o'clock our time, 5 o'clock his time, and he said that line last night or yesterday on Market Call about basically – we I think we were talking about um, Chipotle or something, some sort of blowout thing, and he said it was the most historical thing. He heard he had to wake up his wife or something. No, no, it was the final trade at Fast Money, and Guy will, Guy always does this. He'll say, CMG, or no, Chipotle, it comes out CMG, and I said it comes out another way, too. That this was guy's a good got line. an ongoing thing. All right, Batnick, but, right but talk to us a little bit about um, your journey through financial punditry. You were not trained at some brokerage house, right? Like, uh, or, or did you start in the business? I think I've heard this a no, little bit, but no. the, but the fact, and, and I want to get to how you guys met. I think Guy knows this story. Mm -hmm. I think some of your listeners know this 
the story, but it's fascinating. You've written amazing blog posts. I think it was maybe an anniversary of you yeah. working with Josh and Ritholtz. Tell our listener a little bit about it because I actually think Josh, you had this like persona as a you know kind of swashbuckling you know the reform broker you know on on the web and yeah, your yeah. Twitter and all that sort of stuff. But there's another side of you, and you've told that story, and I think a lot of people who only see you on TV or only see your social probably don't know about it. Yeah. So it's a long, sad story, but I'll tell the abridged version with a happy right. ending. Yeah. So I started at an insurance company and it was the same type of people, desperate people. Nobody chooses to go into that industry. You do it because you have no other options. And believe <laughs> this me, this episode is sponsored by Northwest. Mutual. Believe me, I had no other options. And I found Josh's blog and he seemed to be telling at least his version of the truth. And a lot of the people- what year? That, 2009, yeah. a lot of the people that he was surrounded by, I was surrounded by the same type of characters, just people that were not telling the mm -hmm. truth, that would do anything to make a sale because their livelihood depended on it. And so Josh was like my North Star for bloggers. And I don't know that I thought that I could do it, um, but uh, I, I, I had no options. I was at the end of my rope. I was just ready to give up and say, all right, I'm working at Starbucks. I'm going to do retail. Like I didn't know what else to do. Or I would be a waiter. Just no other options. And we were, I was at a nickname. It was 2011. It was a playoff game. And the only reason why I ended up meeting Josh an hour later was twofold. Number one, my last job opportunity. I got an email from the guy that I interviewed with the day before as I sat down for the game. Sorry, I can't help you. And I'm just like, I'm fucked. I don't know. I'm done. Um, Enjoy the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a playoff game against the Heat. It was game three. And we were down by like 18 points in the third quarter. Mario Chalmers hits a three to put us down 21. And I get up. I said, I'm leaving. My friend's like, where are you going? I said, I got to go. Uh, if Mario Chalmers literally, if he missed that shot, I would never have met Josh. So it was a Friday like night. I cut gems a little. It was yeah, a Friday right. night. And I'm on the train. And Josh is doing a tweet storm about Kurt Cobain's daughter and how old we feel. And the reason why I'm giving all of these details is because I'm reading this and my phone dies as soon as we pull up to Merrick, the town that we grew up in. If my phone didn't die, I would have walked <laughs> right past him with my head buried on my phone. But I put my phone in my pocket because it was dead and I walked past him. It's so, it's so crazy. And I almost tackled him. And so that's, that's how I met Josh. He was like, he was like, listen, I had a couple of drinks tonight. I'm not usually like this. I'm really no. smart. No, you did. Yeah, you did. Just a little bit. You did. No, he said, he said I'm really smart. I'm like studying for my CFA. I'm, I'm, I want to be an analyst. And just forget you ever saw me. I'll call you tomorrow. Like, it was like that. And then he like, I guess I guess uh, Robin was waiting for you? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. You didn't drive home, right? No. Okay, good. Uh, I did. <laughs> so, but anyway, we were not interviewing. Like, we weren't hiring. But Michael, like, came in and we met, and then we were hiring. Like, it was one of those things where somebody comes in, and you're like, wait, shit, we actually probably And you had just like started Ritholtz. No. Oh, no, we were a practice yeah. at someone else's firm. Yeah. Like, we had no business hiring anybody, but we had to have Mike. We hired him, and uh, we hired one other guy at the same time. The four of us ended up as the founding partners of the existing firm. Um, but it was, it was all vibes because he didn't have a resume. Right and I mean, literally I on my resume was Cabana Boy. I have no, no pedigree. I'm, I'm dead serious. That's I have no pedigree either. So it was all vibes. Well, it was it, like it's funny. I met him shortly after that. I want to say 2012 because we were overlapping doing Fast Money a little bit. I started doing it kind of regularly in 2011. Yeah. You were still doing it a bit. You were also on um, halftime. You and I would you know go out with your crew and we'd have drinks and we'd kind of commingle groups and stuff. Yep. And I met you and I remember fuck thinking how uh, smart you were. And I actually um, emailed you maybe a week or two later because I was kind of like. 
at the infancy of risk reversal. I was doing a lot of writing back then and, and doing, you know, options action and fast money. And I remember thinking, I, I was like, hey, listen, does this guy have time? Um, you know, because I, I would love to kind of try to figure out how to engage him. I didn't know what your relationship was at the time. And you Purely were like, platonic. no, he was like NFW. He's like, he's mine. I, I didn't mean no, like, but well, so I'll, I'll, okay, like I've done that with him in numerous situations. Yeah, yeah. Ray Dalio and, tried to hire him. Really? I no, said, no, 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 but, but, mine. but I, to my credit and for young people listening, <laughs> when I first like interviewed with Josh, I did not pretend to know more than I did. Yeah. I just was like, dude, I am obsessed with the market. I, this is what I want to do. I don't even know what this is, but I just want to be involved and I will do whatever you need me to do. I wasn't like trying to impress him I with tell my you knowledge. One thing. I said, I don't know shit, but I want to learn everything. If you build a, if you build a firm, any, any industry, but especially financial services, if you build a firm around people who are like so brutally honest that it's almost uncomfortable, like, hey, I literally don't know anything, but I, I, I swear to God, I will do anything it takes to learn what I need to learn to do this job. Like if you actually hire that way, you may not end up with the biggest firm or the most prestigious firm, but you will end up in a work environment that you're like proud of. And we have so many, I think about hires that we've made subsequent, people that Michael has hired, people that I have hired subsequent to that. We have so many people that was their intro to us. Yeah. It's like, look, here's my deal. And that's still our deal. Like, that's I, what I, I want to hire. I 20 million bucks. I've been managing 20 million bucks. I can't get past it. I don't know what to do. I'm a great advisor. I can't find my next client. Or, hey, I want to make a career change. I sell fucking mutual funds for fidelity to financial advisors. I'm a wholesaler. I hate it. I don't want to do it anymore. But I love giving advice. Yeah. Like, like, that level of honesty goes so far with us. That's yeah. who we end up hiring. Well, so, so funny. So Guy Adami over here, um, as our people would say, is a mensch, okay? Yes. And I'm just – and so Also, he, he's, very honest. He, he speaks to uh, – no joke. You speak to dozens of, of young people um, about the business or a business or going into business, what it takes to do it. Well, like, talk to us a little bit. What's the, the common thread of the advice that you give people? So a couple things. So the backstory of the Ray Dalio is, you know, they actually are going to change it to Batwater, the name of the company. <laughs> I mean, they really wanted to go that far. <laughs> but TRB was able to sort of stave that off. Yeah, yeah. Goldman Sachs, when they started, if you think about Goldman Sachs, it wasn't pedigreed people. I mean, they weren't hiring from the University of Pennsylvania, Cornell, and Harvard. I mean, they were getting street smart, mostly men, to come in. And then they got impressed by like their the own— We the 1800s? Well— I'm Queens College. Kicked and, out twice. And those are typically <laughs> the resume. best people to hire. I mean, the edgy, hungry people, they're not impressed by their own bullshit. You know, if you think about culture, that's how you build well, that a was culture. Bear, that was the Bear Stearns culture. That was Ace, Ace Rothstein wanted uh, PhDs. Poor, hungry, and determined, mm -hmm. and um, that's. I think that's good, but it needs some governing, because if you're always, if you, if you never stop being hungry, like at a certain point, you'll cross over, and I think that's probably the demise of Bear is just too much. I agree with that. Yeah. So, but there has to be some cultivation, and that's it has right. to be some. You have to evolve as a human being as well, and I think to a certain extent, your culture will allow that to happen. But when you talk to people. It's interesting. It's just being naturally curious about things, about everything, and asking questions, and not being scared to look like a jackass. Because that's how that's how the learning curve, I think, is sort of is is 
achieved and climbed and all those different things. So it's the people that come in thinking they know everything. Those are the people you want to avoid well, at all You know, all a costs. lot of that, though, is what you're trying to do and what firm you're applying to. There are certain environments where you're better off faking it till you make it because that's who gets in the door. And then there are firms where the more questions you ask, the more curious, the more open you are about what you don't know, the further you'll go because that's the culture there. So when you talk to young people and they're like, how should I act in an interview? I don't know anything. I've never, it, I almost like feel like you have to be like, well, what are you trying? Are you trying to be an investment banker? Don't walk in there and say you don't know anything. You, like, are you kidding me? Um, what, like, what are you trying to do? And in what environment are you trying to get a job? And that will dictate, I don't, I'm not saying like you should act as something that you're not, but like your attitude, your presentation, your demeanor, I think has to be situationally dependent. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're an engineer, it is about what you know, you need to like know your shit inside and out. We're in the, we're in the relationship business. We're in the people business. And so I'm not looking for people that are trying to impress me with what they know. I just want to hire amazing people. People it's, also be, it's a difference between being prepared for an interview as well. I mean, you can prepare and still have that level of humility where, you know, I don't really know, obviously, what I'm getting myself into, but my preparedness suggests that I can sort of learn this very I quickly. Th I think that's what I did very well, if I could pat myself on the back a little. I always say I'm the luckiest person in the world. Like, it was pure luck that I met Josh. However, I was prepared for that opportunity. I was in the library seven days a week catching up on everything I didn't know. That that's a huge I think point. He, he like he was reading like a hundred books no, a year but, at but, one point. But think about this right now. And I you say were, this, right? When, when, I, when, yeah, I didn't when, know when I was a kid, okay, like like out of school, you know, people used to say, just be inquisitive, ask questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And I actually think in 2023, every question is a dumb question. I want to hear nuanced about some things that you've done the work on about something that you don't have any experience on because think about your ability to access information and learn. You know, we there had was to go no Google when you dude, and I were in high school. We had school. to find someone who did the job yeah. and ask him and they could have sucked at the job, but it was like the only guy that you knew who did the job. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of find that interesting. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you just talked about, you know, yeah, you can have scrappy people at your, your company, but they need to be governed. You've built uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management around um, your uh, ability to connect with people, right? Like, so you guys have a lot of content. Um, and so people are drawn to you from all of these different outlets, whether it's TV, whether it's social, whether it's your blogs, um, your podcast. How do you guys keep the message for Ritholtz, you know, kind of in a lane? Because you got a lot of different personalities with a lot of different expertise, a lot of different opinions. And is that important? Or do you guys, do you guys have, think about have, it? Yeah, we have core... We have core values from an – not like a morality standpoint, but an investing standpoint. And the core values default back down to um, simple is better than complex. Uh, low cost is better than high cost. Taxes matter. You can't eat pre-tax, pre-expense dollars, right, like in, in real life. Um, we don't build any portfolios for anyone who hasn't done financial planning with us. We're not doing asset management a la carte. Um, this is really important actually. When I started in the business, um, the, the training was find something to sell everybody. So in other words, somebody would call – or you call somebody and they'd say, well, I just read in Barron's that uh, small cap value is the place to be this year. If you were a, a Series 7 registered representative, not a financial advisor but a broker, maybe you're calling yourself an advisor, but your job is to find the best small cap value fund and sell it to the person who said that's what they want. That's – a business model. It doesn't exist anymore, but that was the way we were trained. 
going to the advisor side, having the maturity to say, there is a lid for every pot. I am not going to be the lid for every pot. I, this is what I do. If you don't want this thing that I do, that's great. There's a whole world out there. I only will work with people who want what I actually can give them. And then having the maturity to say no. And this is one thing I learned from Barry. Full wallet. You talk to somebody, they want your financial advice. They want um, your investing ability, et cetera. You can't work with somebody who has three other financial advisors. Like you can't – I mean you can, but you're not actually helping. You have to be in charge of the whole thing or just say, no, thank you. Sounds like you're looking for something that so I So that leads do. me to this question. You obviously have a me- methodology in terms of hiring people. But there's probably a methodology in terms of your client base as well. I would submit, and I don't know this, but there are times when maybe that client doesn't align with him or herself with what you guys and gals are trying to build. Then they can't become a client. Well, that's what I was going to say. So how does that process work? So this is the thing. If you talk to people on Wall Street, no matter what firm it is, the biggest firm, the smallest firm, brokerage firm, asset management firm, RIA, whatever, everybody talks about their culture. When you peel the onion back like one layer, though, you realize, like, uh, no, like no disrespect to Credit Suisse, so, you know, so, sorry about that. But, like, they have a wealth management. But you think there's a culture there? You know there's not. It's like, who, works at, who works at Credit Suisse on the financial advisory side? Whoever they wrote the biggest check to, that's the culture. Like, oh, you want me to leave uh, Morgan Stanley for Credit Suisse? Pay me three times my trailing 12 months, and I'll come over. That's not you. It's not culture. I'll give you an example of our culture. We have the ability. To, people self-select because they like us. They believe in our message. Doesn't mean that everybody's a perfect fit, obviously. Um, but we don't want people to Josh's point who want to like pick and choose our advice. So we're lucky that we get to do this. The relationship starts on first base, maybe second base in some cases. We have an advisor in the Northwest, Joey, and I spoke with a prospect that Joey was working on. The family had between 20 and $30 million, which is a lot of money that any wealth manager in the world would do almost anything that they could to get that relationship. I spoke with Joey, said, listen, you're, you're a big boy. You can make your own decisions. My opinion, this person is not a good fit for us. They're going to be a huge pain in your butt. Like, I think you probably know this intuitively. Looking for things we don't like, do. If you need me like, to say this know. to you, like, don't take this client. And he didn't. He passed. There's not too many other firms that would, that would take that and, route. And here's why that's important for our other clients to, to know. The main reason we're not taking these clients that we know are not going to work long term, like we don't want to rent somebody, have them pay us fees for three quarters and then say you're fired because we told them something that is not what we actually provide. It's a huge distraction to your advisors. It's a huge distraction to your staff. It's a huge negative for the investment committee who have to get on calls and explain stupid shit like I own 500 stocks. Why are 20 of them down? Like that's that's a horror or I have six different strategies with you guys. How come they're not all uh, at all-time highs this quarter? If you introduce people like that, no matter how much they're paying you, into your firm, it brings the morale down. It distracts your personnel. It's an it's a overall negative, dollar, dollar figure aside. And if you do that with one bad client, it's a big distraction. So we've made if this- you do that on a regular basis, 
You're, you're out of business. You can't function. We've made this very clear to our advisors. You're going to lose clients. That's just the nature of the business. There are they're people that are, going to, that are going to say yes, nod their head, and then they really are looking for something else. That's, What's churn like in the business in general? It's very low. Yeah. It's very low. No, not, not in yours. I'm just it, saying it's overall. Low. It's, it's low. It's, it's, okay. less low than, overall. it's less than 5%. People don't switch advisors than, that It's less than 5% industry-wide. Yeah. But I've said to my advisors, I'm not going to be mad at you if you lose a client. Never, You're never allowed to say they were a bad fit. If they were a bad fit, so do not take them on. You have to know they're a bad fit by the time you take them on. This is not like a one and done call. It's a four step process, sometimes spanning weeks or months. You know if they're a good fit. This is Don't so, take this them is on so if they're important. a bad fit. I just, like, you can open an account on Robinhood or Public or um, any fintech. In, you could have an account open in 20 seconds. On the surface, that sounds amazing. Why wouldn't everyone want that? Opening an account with us takes multiple meetings and conversations. The on-ramp is really arduous, not in a negative way, but you really have to allow for us to get to know your situation to get in. You can't just call us up and put money in. That's not how it is at a lot of wirehouses, for example, a lot of fintech, like newer RIAs. You can get money into Wealthfront in two seconds. With us, you really have to earn your place as a client because how much we're going to do for you. It's it's The business model would break if we had constant coming and going. Yeah, clients. so I don't want to misrepresent that we're constantly turning no, away no, business. It's mutual. No, 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 no. It's mutual. So on the first call, the advisor and the prospective client identify, hey, are we speaking the same language? Do you want to have a second call? So not everybody not, not everybody's a fit, right? With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Guy and I were brought up in this business as traders. Um, I still trade. I enjoy trading. Um, I love it. I, I make disclosures all the time, no matter where I am, about what I do, why I do it, and like how I got to where I am 25 years later. I'm kind of addicted to it. I, I, you know what I mean? And so, but you guys, you know, it's a little different, Josh. Like, th there used to be some people on your show. They used to, I think in their Twitter bio, said they were the star of the halftime report with Scott Wapner. Um, you, and obviously EY from SoFi, you are the star of that show. There's no doubt in my mind about that, okay? And what you do on there is very different than everything that you guys <laughs> just described, right? Like, mostly, right here about what mostly. you do for let me, back, let me back. Let me back you up so you don't have to edit this. 
<laughs> Scott Wapner is the star of the halftime report. Oh, no, no. I, uh, aside right. from my very that's dear bo- friend boy. and guys. Yes. Okay. I meant ex-host. You know, the real star of the halftime report is the audience. Aww. No, but wait. Wait, you know, we have video now here, Josh. So everyone can see that. So on, <laughs> yeah, the, sh- on the show, you guys talk about individual stocks, mm-hmm. which yeah. I hope we get a chance to do. I love talking oh, about individual he and I, stocks. We're, oh, we're going to do markets. We're yeah. going to do markets. We're going to do individual so stocks, all that. even but. though we believe that simple is generally better than complex and less is more, that doesn't mean that we're buy and hold forever. doesn't mean that we only own the S&P 500 and don't do anything else. It's a lot more sophisticated than that. Um, so we, we don't like talk all about that publicly what we do, but it's not just buy and hold the S&P 500 and shut up, don't do anything. There is a school of thought in the advisory community. It's almost like, uh, they're like Franciscan monks. It's, uh, it's almost like they've taken a vow of, I will never even look at a portfolio and they wear that as a badge of honor. Like anything anyone ever does to a portfolio proactively or reactively is automatically negative or going against the the the, the, dog, the dogma or the orthodoxy. We want a trend following model. Like that's right. hardly so, buy and hold. So we're like we like uh, default to simple and low cost. But if you have ten million dollars investable, you can't actually ride down uh, an S and P in a fifty seven percent drawdown. Yeah, which don't I've worry now about seen. It. In, I've now seen in my career twice. Like you, I know from experience. I've been dealing with clients with the S and P cut in half. You can't say, oh, but read this fucking Carl Richards blog post. Right. Yeah, don't worry. Stocks always come back. We don't want to say that. But let me ask you a question. I want to ask Josh, both yeah. of you, actually. What do you mean you're nervous? Didn't yeah. you read Morgan Housel's tweet? <laughs> so, so. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you can't actually manage money that way. Can you the manage psychology money? psychology of money. Can you manage money for, yeah, for, uh, for 30-year-olds yeah. who, who are accumulating wealth for the next 30 years? Yeah, you could probably do that. Can you really do that for people who have made all the money they're ever going to make um, and have no rules, no sell ever. Nobody like, wants to hear that. I wouldn't want to hear it. So with everything you guys said, and I understand it, so let me ask you this because I'm sure you have issues with it. I know I do. And this is not to cast aspersions on Kathy Wood, but when 10 of her top 10 stocks at one point were down anywhere from 65 to 80%, yet she's still making these claims and – you know, getting out there and talking. How do you wrap your head I, around okay. something like that? I love her. It's got nothing to do with her personally. No, no, no. I, I met her personally uh, t- uh, three times. It's not personal. I love that she exists. I re- No, I really do. I love that she sticks to what she's doing. She doesn't change for anyone. I, I think she's insane for putting price targets out and valuation cases of $2 trillion on t- like All of that to me seems like a way bigger risk for her than a possible reward. But that's career stuff. I love that she she's a great personality. She has really interesting things to say. I don't invest with her. Right. I don't invest that way. I don't allocate to that. I don't think it's necessary. But if you're somebody that's into that type of investing, she is a lot of fun. I don't think is that, she though. Yes, really. Well, so I mean, like, in I, some I, years, better than others. No, but but in no years over the last five, other than one. You're missing what but, I'm saying. Yeah, you missing what I'm saying. I, I am. There's a portion of everyone's portfolio where Yolo. they're swinging for the fences. Yeah. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist. Everyone has penny stocks. Everyone has innovation bullshit in their portfolios. It shouldn't really get to the point where it like ruins or makes your life. So for that portion of your portfolio. If you want somebody like her out there saying crazy shit and invested in stocks that could double or get cut in half in a day, 
that's like a good version of that from my perspective. I don't I don't dislike it at all. I really don't. I find it fascinating the level of stick at a certain point in our business being early is being wrong and being wrong is being wrong. I mean, in some ways, she has been Dude, historically last year, wrong. Last year, she did a Martin uh, a Martingale strategy. You know what that is? No, I don't. Martingale strategy is like a uh, uh, play play uh, playing blackjack or playing roulette. You lose, double the bet. Oh, yeah. You lose again, double the bet. Lose, double the bet. Keep doubling the bet. Eventually, when you win, holy shit! <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, so I, I'll just say this: I, I, I look at, I look at Mar- her Martingale for life. I look at her top holdings, and there's nothing left innovative about most of them. Zoom they look like every. They look like what, what Lycos and Excite, and they look like all the stuff that had these run-ups from '97 well, I know, to 2000. Uh, Coinbase. What else is in Dude, there? Dude, Zoom is about literally ready to make new lows, yeah, like awful. new alt. I mean, like the list goes on and on. Teladoc. Coinbase Wells Notice. I mean, Roku is like put it on the trash heap of like <laughs> junk tech. I mean, like I'm being serious. Like the list goes on and on. There is nothing good about her it's the existence. Most controversial list of stocks. Z- Zoom will never recover. I mean, obviously. Wait, no. can you say there's nothing good about her existence? No, I, I just I don't I don't. I don't. That's a little harsh. Is that going to be the episode? No, I don't title? mean that. This is not again about her person, like her, her existence. Per, I'm on sure Earth. she's, as guy says all the time, uh, you know, about our Fed officials. I'm sure they're nice people. I'm sure they're lovely people. Lovely people. She That's what very, he said. Actually, she I is very. Her. She seems very she is, nice. She is a very nice person. And you know what? We talk shit about all these guys that hug the index. All these guys charging one percent right. to barely differ from the S and P. She's putting it out every there. Year. She had one year. Just never forget. She had one year. Six publicly traded ETFs, every one of them more than doubled. In history, no asset manager has ever done that with mutual funds, ETFs. I'm not saying it's repeatable. We know now it's not. I'm not saying that's how people should try to invest. But she's like Sally Ride. Like, <laughs> I mean, she fucking did that. It's 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 in it's printed. It's done. All right, can we give our own opinions? Let's talk stocks. Let's talk. So, so let's. The last time with four of us got together, it was and Danny. It was made, it was, de- it was in December. December 16th, and we. T- I, I think. think we, uh, listen, I can only speak for myself. Definitely bearish. All right, overall. Here's my first pick: Arc Innovation Fund. A R K. We were in that room. I asked the audience, show of hands, how many people think we're going to a recession in 2023? 100 percent of the hands mm-hmm. went up, more or less. Show of hands, how many people think October was the low? About three hands went up. Right. So here we are. The S and P's four thousand. I mean, we've gotten as we got down to the thirty eight hundreds. We got north of forty one hundred, but we're basically getting chopped up here, and it's the end of March. I what are your add, thoughts? I, well, I want to throw it back to you because I've given plenty of thoughts. I want to hear from you guys. Everybody seems to be thinking that the economy is definitely slowing, which I am in that camp. I don't think the ex- economy is accelerating. I think the economy is slowing. Um, the Fed is still raising rates while they're bailing out depositors or backstopping depositors. Um, it seems like there's a lot of reasons why the stock market should be lower, and yeah, I don't know. Are. I don't know why it's not going lower. I would submit to the market that the market knows more than I do and knows more than all of us. Why is the market not doing what we think it should be doing? I wish I could answer. I think part of it is still passive investing rules the day. Money flows in regardless. I think that's part of it. I also think that there's can't this. Be it. I don't think it's the entire thing. I also think there is this misguided, in my opinion, misguided belief that the Fed will at some point come in and have their back. So. If they reverse and if they start to cut rates, all people have seen over the last 15 years is low-rate environment, stocks go higher. I happen to think in this situation, low-rate environment, if they were to cut in the back half of this year, it's not because good things are happening. Mm -hmm. It's because more things went wrong. And I think people are just misreading it, in my opinion. I'd like to tell an alternative story, one that you haven't heard before. 
you really have to talk to people in their 70s and 80s, yeah. which I I, mm. I do at times, and to really understand the most important dynamic in the markets right now. And this was very surprising to me. So I did a lot of reading and uh, to try to confirm it. Um, but I don't think you can read and really understand it if you weren't there. Well, we have a 70-something-year-old right You're here, not quite so, there. Yeah. Uh, my father-in-law is an accountant, and he spent his whole life working with people 20, 30 years older than him. And they were rich in the 60s and the mm -hmm. 70s and the 80s. Here's the thing about being rich in the early 80s. When interest rates were sky – the last time we had an interest rate – situation like this was like late 70s or into early mm -hmm. 80s. If you were rich in the early 80s, you didn't need a mortgage, right? You probably owned your house in cash. You bought it for $4,000 or whatever, <laughs> but right? You didn't need an auto loan either. And there was no leasing really, right? So you need to borrow money for a car. You weren't paying student loans, right? College was not even really a thing for most people. And if it was a thing for you and you were rich, you just paid the tuition. Tuition to UCLA was like $800. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even making this up. So if you were a rich person in the early 80s, the last time rates were this high, were you happy or, uh, or unhappy? You were fine. You were making so much fucking money doing nothing, just collecting mm -hmm. rent from the U.S. government for existing. You were never making more money, actually. And that's why in that era, you had such a weird dichotomy. You have a movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 17-year-olds, dirt poor, basic middle class but no money. Right? One of them scalping tickets. Two of them work in the, in the fucking movie theater. <laughs> what does that have to do with Apple? Because uh, what I'm trying to explain is. Damone. What I'm trying to explain is. Some really good ice tea. You would think that high <laughs> rates are, or rising rates is like hurting everyone. Negative. No. For those teenagers, it was terrible. They needed to borrow money to go to college. They needed to fill their gas tank. Yeah. So they had part-time jobs after school. Right? Okay. But you didn't see rich people in that movie. If you did you would see them making an unprecedented <laughs> amount of money on their portfolio of gold, of treasuries, right? Stock dividends, whatever. This is a very analogous situation to that. And so I bring it up. If you're a wealthy person right now, you don't need a mortgage, let's say, right? You don't need to finance the purchase of an auto. You don't have a kid getting ready to go to college. Are you okay with the environment? Absolutely. I think you're better than okay. This is so much better than three years ago when rates were zero. You're sitting on a million dollars cash. It's mm -hmm. earning nothing. This is actually a great environment for the wealthiest Americans. And who do you think owns the stock market? Well, that's so me. Just, so that's so, why you're, you're right. at 4,000 in the S&P. Now, talk to non-rich people. <laughs> Are they working? Yes. Did they just get a raise in the last year? 100% guaranteed. Or they could at will. Could they find another job tomorrow? Yes. Should they be unhappy? So this is where we are. It's not that bad. It's only bad if you spend your day on Twitter or watching financial television. <laughs> no, that's fair. It's not Problem, bad of course, for anyone. Is, well, I mean, if you're middle or lower class, it's not particularly good. I mean, if you have if you own assets and stocks, yeah, it's always been good. But I think that wealth gap, in my opinion, yeah. just continues to widen out. And I don't know at a certain point how sustainable would you that rather is. Be, who would you rather be right now, though, all kidding aside? Would you rather be somebody working at Disney who's about to be caught up in the next wave of layoffs or a truck driver? Probably a truck driver. Okay. Truck driver, guaranteed almost permanent employment for the next at least three years. Would you? Okay. So this idea of a wealth gap and who's doing well and who's not. It's fair. You work in the knowledge economy. Pack your shit now. Like <laughs> literally pack your shit. <laughs> if you work in blue collar economy, 
you're probably making more money than you were two years ago, and you have a lot of job security that the genius at Google or Disney does not have. Hold I mean, on, I'm sorry. I don't know no, what this is with the stock market, but can I just say one thing about this? So it seems to be that when news comes out impacting individual securities, they move fast. Mm-hmm. Google got kneecapped by ChatGPT, probably rightfully so. Maybe maybe earnings were dragged too far to the present, fine, whatever. Regional banks, immediately, as soon as there is news in the stocks, it is over. It's not ha- Why is the stock market not reacting to what we think is bad news on the horizon? Because I would ask you this, is there a bullish case on the economy for the economy to improve in the second half of the year? Hard to make the bullish case. Are stocks cheap based on valuation? No. What is holding the market up? I just told you. No, you well, didn't. Right, so what? Rich, you, rich right. people are making tons of money. What does that have to do with the stock and, market? And not rich people are raking in tons so of salary. So I think it goes back to sentiment, which is what that's we what started. It, that's this. what it means like, for the stock market. I, I think that a lot of people were very bearish, um, you know, kind of coming into this year because this they were convinced that we were going to have at some point in Q2 or early Q3, we're going to have a recession, right? And at the stock market, on average, I think in the last 60 or 70 years, um, has a 35% peak to trough decline. Um, you know, it, in a recessionary environment, that's what the kind of bear market looks like. I think a lot of people felt like we haven't even had the earnings like guide down for the out year, which would be this year, Estimates right? Yeah, right, right. Not, not but enough. they've been coming down not a little enough. bit, right, right? right? We're still expecting high single digits right. S and P earnings growth um, for this year. We have an eighteen, I think, fact set um, on a trailing basis um, has about an eighteen uh, ten year average um, PE. That's kind of about where we are right now. We closed the year down twenty or so percent. The Nasdaq closed down thirty or so, and we haven't had the recession, right? And then sentiment shifted on a dime in January. It was kind of the reversal of zero COVID in China. China, right? It was the idea that inflation was going to be coming down a little bit, that the Fed was going to be able to pivot. Now, this is all before this little banking crisis emerged in February, right? But so did the market front run this? Because the Qs were down 35% peak yeah. to trough, then the S&P was down 25%. Yeah. So did we already take our medicine? Most people think, no, it's not enough. Dan, so I think I think this is a cop-out answer, but I don't know how else to explain it. I think it's just positioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan, Everyone hates the market. Dan, last, last, last year, the S&P 500's multiple fell 30%. Yeah. The S&P price peak to trough was down 25.8%. Earnings were up 6%. Um, And by the way, economically, one of the best years ever for the average American. Yes, prices went up, but again, sorted wages, and they've never had as much money as they had in the bank a year ago. Um, Never, like historically. Uh, So think about it. Last year, the stock market underperformed the real economy. This year, it could be a reversal. You could have Mm -hmm. a shitty economy. But for the reasons that I just cited, the stock market could hold up better than any of us think. And it's really instructive to go back and look at uh, multiples versus actual earnings because that's really the big wild card. We don't know what people are going to want to pay. Right. Even if you nail the earnings number, how could you possibly know? And the the gap between paying 17 or 21 it's times big. earnings huge. Huge. is huge. huge in price. So we could have a stock market outperform the real economy this year. Last year went the other way around. Yeah, happens no, all the time. I, I don't disagree. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little game here. Okay, oh, like and games. I was thinking about this um, last night. All right, so April third. <laughs> spin the bottle. April third is Monday. Wait a okay? minute. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the oh first trading day. Off. It's the first trading day of Q two. Okay, and the S and P let's say is going to close up four and a half five percent or so, depending upon you know like give or take right. 
the NASDAQ is going to close up. The NASDAQ 100 is going to close up 17, 18%. Okay. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm going to do this on, on Monday and I'm going to do this every day. The market is open in Q2. I'm going to buy $500 worth of QQQ. Okay. The 200 day moving average is $290. The October low was $260. Okay. And we're trading about 311 right now. Do you guys think that my average price on June 30th, okay, at the end of Q2, 90 days buying consistently the same amount every day? Same, Do you yeah. think the average price will be what? Higher or lower? Higher you, or will lower? Will you be up or down on the trade? Well, well, yeah. Will I be yeah. up or down on the trade? I mean, I do love the just keep buying mentality. I, I know you do. And I, think, I, I, I think, know it speaks to what you guys I think, listen, like, I'm, think about. I'm, I'm, I think you'll be down. Okay. I think you'll be up, and I'll tell you why. And we're going to revisit this in July. I okay. think you'll be up because there will be some downside shock. Some giant you'll tech get a company misses already, to... but you're a buyer on that day. Yeah. But it depends when you buy. Mm. So I think that I think that we've got momentum on our side right you now. Buy the close. As my advisor, what should I do? Should I buy it on buy the close? Because I can automate it. I'm gonna automate it. Five hundred. Buy the close? Yeah. Should I buy yeah, the buy close? The close. Yeah. You could automate when you buy? No, I don't know. I mean on the close, can't you do that? And then I run it down to the sky runs it down. No, but this will be a fun exercise. But so I you know what I'm saying? Like we all love talking about individual stocks, but I generally do believe for 99.9% of people, it's a distraction. You should autopilot. You should just keep buying and go live your life. Yeah. What interests you? Like, I don't want to play stock market, but there's stocks that you find fascinating at certain levels. I'm Throw so, some names out. Not, not yeah, buy, sell, yeah, just yeah. things that you're so interested I am, in. I am, in. I am by nature, I guess, a value investor, um, even though I really don't want to be. So I am much more inclined to buy stocks near the 52-week low this, which mm -hmm. I know is the way to lose money. I'm the opposite of you in that. It's the way, it's a good way to lose money. Um, I don't know. I've got some sort of a mental defect, but I only want to do it with stocks that I, companies that I believe in. For example, when Netflix is down 65%, mm -hmm. I'm buying Netflix. When Facebook is down 80% and Kramer is crying on TV, I buy Facebook. So I am more inclined. Now, I will also buy stocks that I think are breaking out. I bought Spotify. So I will buy stocks that are in an uptrend as well. Um, so I've learned a little bit from my mistakes. Just to be clear, uh, and Guy knows this, and again, we talk every day on the markets, whether it be market call, on the tape, OK Computer, Fast Money. Um, I bought all three of those stocks that you mentioned. People think I only sell stocks. They think I only buy puts and things. I bought they think all. You're short. They think you're like net short. No, all day long. since April 2009, <laughs> since my first episode of uh, Options Action. So, uh, I, also, just to be, so uh, yeah. I, bought, I bought all those things. I, I bought Snap at 8 Dollars. I mean, so what I'm saying, and I do trade them. See, that's yeah. the I'm one. I'm not buying and holding forever. No. But I, I also like founder-led companies. So yeah. all the ones that I just mentioned, Spot, oh, Zillow I bought. So I like companies that I believe in when they're down 70%, which guess what? I, you, I haven't had the opportunity over the last decade to swing like that. Yeah. When you see a name like NVIDIA is a name that gets talked about on the network dozens of times a day. Every single day, nobody you know, I, wanted. I invented that stock on the network. I think you may have. I know. Seriously, I, did. I think you did. I did I called my shot like Babe Ruth? But <laughs> 2015, I said, "Pull Netflix out of Fang and put Nvidia in." Just uh, to be clear, here, here's a headline from CNBC.com from yesterday. Nvidia will be the grand marshal of the AI bubble parade. Sounds like Josh would says say. Josh Brown. Oh, I love Oy that. Vey. No, but it's it's fascinating just the mentality of the market. In October, when that stock was 108, yeah, you couldn't, couldn't give get it away. In. You couldn't right. give it away. That's right. right. It's 265 dollars now. Yeah. It's up 100 and whatever percent. It's fundamentally, almost nothing has changed. So I and get when people exactly. when, when things are uninvestable like that interests me. So I'm the opposite of Mike. I'll show you a chart that exemplifies what I like to do. How about Micron? Look at Micron's chart. Is this so thing about to break out big time? I'm an investor, but I like to 
I like to anticipate breakouts. Oh, Intel too. Wow. And I good. like to like the fundamentals as much as the technicals at the same time. And so this is like really rare. But I want you to look at Oracle real quick. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the story. It still looks good. It has not broken out yet, but it's on the verge. You can see it. Ninety-two, ninety-three mm-hmm. is resistance. Um, this is a stock that's been waiting, that's been waiting uh, a very long time to finally break out. Um, it's it's not a fang, but it's pretty damn big, and it's in all the same businesses as yeah. the fangs. And and value, and you can make a case on valuation it's, without I think question. It's the third largest cloud now. It's or the fourth large. Excuse me, the fourth largest cloud behind Amazon, Google, and Microsoft but with really big, important wins like TikTok is completely powered by Oracle's cloud. Um, this is a stock that is a value stock. It's $250 billion uh, market cap. Hedge funds can trade in and out of it very easily. It has all that liquidity that the fangs give you, um, but it's it's got a almost 2% dividend yield, big buyback. Safra Katz is the CEO. She's not Elon Musk. She's not controversial. She just very quietly is building Oracle into a cloud player when it used to be a database player and uh, the stock is working. I'll push back a little bit on this. So I, I get worried when stocks are hovering near highs without breaking out. Like, I don't know what's keeping a lid on Oracle at 90, 91 bucks, but I think it's these 80 before a hundred. It's possible. What's keeping a lid on it is that nobody wants to, nobody really wants to buy an all time high unless there's like definitive news that gets people really excited, and that's if, not going to happen. If this, really. do, if this do, I know this is like you know circular. If this does break, it's going to go to 100 immediately. Let me ask you guys I this: think so. We've yeah. talked about home builders specifically, the big Pulte Homes, Toll Brothers, DHI. Monsters. You look at all those stocks. Pulte Homes, yeah, what I are think, they, just right? made what are an all time high. About the economy, Lenar looks you know, amazing. All of them were within earshot of their all time high, which was I think in December of 2021. So go ahead, Josh. I how mean, can but, you, but okay. that's because you got. How, how can you have a stock that looks like Boeing? And tell a and tell a, a story of a of an economic depression, how, like how, really, how can you? It it is it is um, trillions of dollars in backlog now that it's got its problems behind it, and it's a global demand story. Mm-hmm. And people don't buy planes because they think next quarter is going to have high demand. This is like multiple decades out ahead of them. So they can see the trends. The market is telling a different story than the market participants. If you look at the strength in industrials, to Josh's point, if you look at the strength in semiconductors, unless the market is totally wrong, which guess what? It could be. <laughs> the market is not always right. But when everybody says one thing and the market is responding the exact opposite, I have to say, what does the market know that all of us geniuses don't? How well, is the ITB How is the ITB 7% off its all-time high with interest rates having gone up 500 basis points in 13 months? Well, I think there is a specific – There's the new construction is the only game in town. And so the home builders are raking the it home in. home builders, right. Yeah. But, but this is my point, though. You you had this shock to the mortgage market. It got processed. And, hey, Quickly you know processed. what? It turns out it almost doesn't matter how expensive a mortgage is if there are no homes to buy. Right. But that plays into their story because there's That's no right. – houses are not coming out to market. So new construction is the only but game. Listen, I'm with you on that. Yeah. But we've been talking about that whole dynamic for a while. The other thing – and c- continue, but I was going to say – a similar story is happening with some of these energy stocks, which, you know, the underlying commodities gotten whacked, but 
there's a resilience to a lot of those names as well. In home builders, to me, it's supply demand fundamentals or imbalances, and I think the same thing's going on in energy. Look but at please Exxon. Continue. Exxon got killed. It's ripping right back. It's within because $8 the, of its all-time one, one of the things that's different about oil and gas companies now versus 20, 30 years ago and why a lot of the uh, attitudes about what those stocks trade based on are wrong mm-hmm. is that technology has advanced. You can shut off drilling and then restart it pretty much at will now. That was not something you could do in the 70s and 80s. So those old relationships between 100%. commodity prices and how much money um, uh, commodity companies make, it's not the same math. I don't think that most people really think that deeply about it. They say, oh, crude's down 10%, sell my Exxon. They're That's much not- better. You're 100% right. They're much better run companies. The balance sheets are much better. And I said this, and I don't know if you agree or not, but I think the best thing that happened to these energy companies is ESG. And subsequently, the Biden administration, some of the policies out of there. Professional management. You think about you think about the oil and gas people that started the industry. Like there will be blood. Yeah. Like actual murderers. You think even thirty years ago, it's guys that looked and talked like Yosemite Sam. Like listen, now it's MBAs. It's professional management. They're not doing the same stupid shit that oil companies did in the early eighties during during the bust. Like. There's, there's a you, industries learn from from their own past mistakes, just like people learn. There are no wildcats anymore. All right, but listen, you guys are not going to come into our studio and convince <laughs> us out of being bearish. Yeah, okay? Stop buying home builders. But, 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 but let me, <laughs> I'm not bullish. Let me the just. I want to answer. Your, I want to. You're right about the market. And so, what's also interesting to me is that you have a VIX that just broke 20 to the downside. You know, you have an S and P. Like nothing ever happened. Like like Amazing. nothing ever happened. I mean, so to me, what I actually and, and this goes back to that period last October, and I did it also in June where I bought beaten up uh-huh. things where people are crying on TV about how wrong they were in this or that or whatever. And I was waiting for those opportunities, right? And so I'm trading ranges in this and that or whatever. I guess my point is there is no fear in the market at a time where there is plenty of room for it. And so when you ask, did we front load the kind of market, um, you, know, you know what I mean, like reaction to what a recession might be? And I'd say to you, not really, because we haven't even had the earnings cuts in a meaningful way. So I would love to see one more panic, okay? And, and see positioning get off sides again. Summer. Yeah. yeah, you might. Yeah. Oh, I mean, who knows? Yeah, p- people might get too bullish. If, if we're up 10% in the next uh, week and a half, yeah, mm-hmm. people get real bullish Deutsche, real fast. If, Do- if Deutsche Bank goes to seven bucks on the equity, what do you yeah. think is going to be going on in uh, in CDS markets? But right now, my only point is, is short term, right now, when everyone seems to be bearish and the market just refuses to go down, in mm-hmm. fact, it's going up, you have to pay attention. Positioning. Yeah, yeah, well, let me ask you guys this. Okay, this goes back to like your ability to speak to your clients. Wait, Dan, can I say one thing about what you just said, though? Yeah, I want to back it. up. You yeah. talked about you, what you were doing in January, yeah. like you were fading panic. I think if if somebody said to me, what's the number one thing that an investor should be good at to have longevity, either as someone investing their own money or a pro, the ability to fade both extremes Mm -hmm. is probably the number one attribute that will keep you in the game. So in 2021, you don't get so excited about the innovation and all this shit. And then in, in 2022... You don't think like the world is coming to an end. And just like the ability to fade both, be a little bit skeptical, but a little bit uh, optimistic. And like, just like uh, Buffett says, investing is not a game where the guy with 130 IQ beats the guy with 120. (laughs) It's temperament. This is like the number for me. And I'm not great at this because I I have huge highs and lows in my own persona. Mm -hmm. Like Mike will tell you, I'm not always, I'm not always a lot of fun to be around. 
But like yeah. as an investor, if you can fade the tendency to get too despondent or scared or to get too excited and just be somewhere in the middle, you don't have to nail it perfectly. Yeah. You can survive. Well, you know, that's interesting. The, the hard thing is we're all emotional beings. And I say the same thing in a different way. I tell people the best traders that I've known historically are the ones that instead of having that huge sine curve of emotions, they, they're able to flatten it out to an extent. Not easy to do, easier said, I, I easier think said that it's done. much easier to keep your cool in a panic than it is when the market is going higher. Because right, so the let, me stop, market, let me stop you one second, Michael. Point. Hold on. So what, it's interesting you say panic and you associate that with downside. I don't mean buying panic. There's been buying yeah. panics. Yeah. I, I would submit eh, in they're rare. some... A lot of the panic we saw last year were up days, actually. But I understand what you're saying. So my point is, the bull markets wear you down. Like if you're eventually, most people will chase because it's just they last a lot longer. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot harder to keep your cool when every fucking day you're like looking around them. I the only, in panics, panics tend to like like Josh bought Schwab that day, and I was thinking about doing it. They're it, it's quick. They're mm -hmm. done before they even start. So it's much easier, in my opinion, to keep it cool in a oh, market the, crash. Right, the bull, if you're a bear in a bull market, it's hard. You will eventually. You will eventually. You'll, you'll either capitulate or you'll lose enough assets under management where it doesn't matter if you capitulate or not. Yeah. So, so guys, give us a sense um, of what it was like a few weeks ago. Runs on multiple banks. Um, Silicon Valley Bank went into receivership and and. Made Maybe a lot of your client base didn't even know what the hell they are and what they do or whatever, but it was getting a lot of airtime. You know, wh what did it feel like? Were you getting calls? You know, because that that sensibility about a bank run is the thing that is very close to home. If you own something like a, a risk asset or a home and you hear about, you know, oh, the stock sold off 20% because they missed guidance, you might not panic. Well, to Michael's or, point, it went fast. We, we wrote something about Schwab because – 80% uh, of our assets are either at TD, which is becoming Schwab, yeah. or at Schwab. But we didn't send it out. And we felt that, okay, if somebody asks a question, are you nervous about Schwab? Are you worried? This is our – Michael wrote mm -hmm. it, beautifully written, perfect, all the details, all the important points. But we didn't, like, mass blast it out. One reason for that is there's a lot of people that are not watching the share yeah. price of Charles mm -hmm. Schwab. Why even point attention to it? It's a custodian for our clients. Mm -hmm. That's why it's relevant to us. Um, we're not invested in the stock. Like that's literally where our clients yep. have their money. We know that Schwab is not a regional bank. We know that, you know, the risk there is not the same as, for, okay, but fine. So he wrote this thing, maybe had a few advisors use it for a few nervous clients. But the other argument for not blasting that out is, hey, this could get a lot worse. Let's keep some bullets in the chamber. Yeah. If we have to do a dear, a dear client letter, let's make sure it's at a moment where we really need it. Because if we're just sending letters every time the market falls two percent, mm -hmm. what are we doing? What, but, but, but like, what are, what message are we sending? Do your client clients? inquiries in those periods did, does it affect your sentiment so about overall market? In I, I was really fucking worried over the weekend. Yeah. Like I was very concerned. I don't take bank runs lightly. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like yeah. I was optimistic that the government, the powers that be, would do what they needed to do. But there was also a chance that they just let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, I, I've said this before, if they didn't act on Sunday, they would have acted on Monday, I think, because it would have just been full-blown chaos. Mm -hmm. So I was not fucking around. I was very, very concerned. And then, um, yeah, we had, we had clients, sure, that were asking about about Schwab. I don't I don't think it was like uh, everyone, but absolutely clients were concerned. Yeah. I, and you know what? There's a lot of PTSD still in the system from 2008, and everything looks like 2008. Mm -hmm. If you lived through that, if you were a wealthy person with investments on the line, you definitely lost money that year. So there's a lot of PTSD, and on my part also, like I still have see shades of that everywhere. 
So it makes sense that people would be concerned. And I I'm think, glued to my computer. Robin's like, well, you're not the president. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Our job in that situation is not to try to guess what happens next, but just to try to assure people that no matter how bad this gets, there'll be a next day. And, you know, every time there's a, a an incident like this, it's an opportunity. The regulators tighten things up. The markets get a little bit stronger. People hold more cash. Like it's it always works in the favor of prudence but, uh, to make it through to the other side, but you have to make it through to the other side. I said that's, to Robin, really like, it's my about. job to be concerned. Like we are responsible yeah. for people's financial life. We have to worry for other people. What did yeah. you guys learn last year about the, the typical, and I know it, it may not be the typical 60-40 anymore, but just with, with what happened, you know, even for the most conservative sort of diversified investors, because it seemed like last year was a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, last year was an anomaly. There's never been a reason. So typically bonds provide uh, ballast when stocks are falling. Last year, bonds were the reason why stocks were falling. So you got hit from both ways. I don't view it as a failure of the 60-40 portfolio. I don't think there's any such thing as a bulletproof all-weather, never-lose-money portfolio. That's what risk is. I think you could spin it in a way that's not bullshit, where it actually is a good thing. I've been saying for years, if we want to make money with our fixed income, the fixed side of it has to go up. Now, I wish it was more of a stair step than an elevator up, because we pulled forward a lot of losses. But the thing with bonds are, it's math. You know that if you're in a 14% deficit and you're getting 3.5%, give it four years, you'll be back to even. It sucks. It's not fun that it happened in a year when the market was down 25%. But on a go-forward basis, I'd much rather start with yields at 4% than at 1%. We can't go We can't go from zero to four again. We took our medicine and it's behind us. Importantly, we're not a firm that believes that 60, 40, you're good to go. That's all you need. Um, maybe if you're 30, 40 years old and you're adding to it every month – then it's probably all you need, mm -hmm. and you should probably be 80-20, quite frankly, and stomach that extra volatility. But for our clients, again, we don't believe in that. Uh, for, for high net worth, older clients, that they should be fully at risk to the stock and bond markets. So Michael mentioned we have a trend-following strategy. It's not a big part of what we do, but last year it did its job. It The trend was obviously negative uh, for stocks. Um, so – it, it, and to be fair, to be fair, there was a there was a few really lousy whipsaws, but it definitely decreased day to day volume. We had less exposure last year than we had in twenty one, for sure. Like like the trend following strategy was long pretty much the entirety of post COVID twenty twenty all through twenty one. In twenty two, it wasn't. And By the way, not because we're geniuses. It's just not because we're geniuses. The trend is the trend. Yeah. So if you, you're you running, guys actually didn't need to make that disclosure, <laughs> but we got that. Yeah. Uh, so if you, so if you're running a rules based tactical approach alongside of a uh, a sixty forty, and then maybe there's a tax free muni strategy next to that, and it's in the seven eight million dollar portfolio, the person that you're doing that for will listen to you through the crisis. But so I think the point is, Cause, it's, cause it's, you, it's discipline. Yeah. We have rules. We're disciplined. We're not going to fucking panic. We're not going to do something stupid and shoot ourselves in the foot. Our job is to offload your financial anxiety onto us, <laughs> make sure that you are on target to do whatever you want to do with your life so that you don't have to watch financial TV. What's great now, though, is that we're at the point um, when we started the firm, we were not at this point where we could actually point to, hey, here's what literally what we did in this environment and that environment. We, you know, we had back tests. Now we actually talk to clients, clients that have been with us. You'd say you didn't panic. You didn't panic in uh, 2016 during Brexit. You didn't panic when Trump got elected and everyone thought the world would come to an end. You didn't panic in 2018 during the trade war. You're like, so why now? What's different now? Or what? What? Which of your future goals do you want to throw away? Because we're going to reduce equity exposure. So what do you not want to do? Like, so that's number one. So you do that with existing clients, but now we can also do that with newer clients. 
And there's a history of us doing the right thing in those moments. And it's documented and you can't make it up. Like you literally did it. And, and also, that's to, a very different story. Plug, but there's more to being a financial advisor than just a portfolio. We, we literally file taxes for people. We obviously are doing financial planning and retirement advice. We're doing loans if we have to. Like we're getting involved in every financial aspect of their life. It's one of the most important relationships you can have if you, as a client, if you do it right, is picking the right advisor. So I'm sure your clients, which are now in the thousands, I'm sure, thrilled that they have it's, you it's guys. A, it, you know, I, pre I appreciate you saying that. And I think one of the things with, with clients, um, we, we probably shouldn't be everyone that's listening's financial advisor. The number one thing that you have to decide as a potential client of any advisor is, is this person uh, the person that I want to be in front of or on the phone with in my worst moments of doubt, like something really bad happens in my career or a stock market crash or whatever, like some horrible personal tragedy. Am I hiring a person that I feel like that's who I want to call and ask questions about estate shit and, and tax shit and life insurance and starting a second career or selling a business or having a business go under or living through 1987? Like, is this the person? And that should really be the primary determinant and it should take a front seat to what's your what fact what smart beta factors are you waiting toward and that person quality not, or dividends that person is not like, Josh or I we have incredible advisors yeah you, it's, it's not going to be me it's going to be somebody much calmer than me. so, right, so like, like, we, we, we got to get out of here pretty soon here but you guys um you know I came on your pod on compound and friends you were not there Michael you must have been on spring break or something and the headline was Dan Nathan predicts recession <laughs> like that and I went and looked at all of the titles okay of the last like few months and that it's one Come on, you really funny. put that one out there it's I mean like funny. I know I know, you know and I didn't funny. even hit I waited for this moment because okay. I was going to hit you about that is Nick and I laughed and laughed we were sat in the room is. after you left we're like what should we call this episode that. so guy we gotta <laughs> come up that. we gotta come up with a doozy here man I mean, Mike Batnick says he should be starting Michael, shooting guard for the Knicks. That's why I said Mike. Mike Batnick's game is most similar to who'd you say? Derek McKay. All right, so so guys, the Derek McKay of uh, financial. Nobody advice. knows who that. Can is. we commit to doing this more frequently, just yes, like this? I'm down Danny's whenever. gonna Danny's gonna be back in town. He spends the he winters down in Florida in Boca, um, but he's gonna be back down uh, back up here, and we want to do it together. We want to do it. Let's find opportunities to raise money for great causes like you guys did last time. And We're gonna have you guys back at Future Proof this September. Yeah, you gotta so, drag a uh, guy out there. Talk, talk to us a little bit. Where is it this year? <laughs> Same place, babe. <laughs> Which Come was on. amazing. Guy's not coming. Yeah. Um, what's, what's gonna happen I at might. Future Proof? Like, I, I've been getting emails. So you guys are literally registrations open for this. Tell everybody really quickly what Future Proof so is. So registration is already open. Uh, it'll be thousands of people working in fintech, financial advice, wealth management, financial planning, asset management, and the idea behind the event is making yourself as an industry participant, future-proof. Mm -hmm. Like your career, your uh, the degree to which you understand technological trends in the industry, the tools that you're using, the relationships that you're forming, just future-proof your own career by coming to Future Proof. That's, it was, it was, was an whole, awesome, awesome yeah. event. It it's was been, at Honey much, Beach and much right bigger on the this beach. year. And we we know a lot about how to do an event. Yeah. We've learned a lot. There'll, there'll be more shade. Uh, yeah. be more AC. No, but it's it's gonna be fun, and and you guys are. We would love to have it's you. It's interesting you say that. You know, show. one of the I, when I started working in 1986, I'm I'm old, but I'm not as old as I pretend to be. Somebody came up to me and said, and this speaks to future proof. 
you'd never want to be the carburetor in the engine. You want to be the entire engine because the carburetor can be mm. switched out. It can I be like replaced. That. I like that. And that's what you're doing, I think, with Future Proof. I appreciate that. When you talk to uh, when you talk to somebody at the event, you're like, why are you here? Not one of them is like referencing any of the stuff that we put on stage. We have great content on stage. Mm-hmm. Most of the people are like, I just want to meet people and hear what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, there's such dispersion. Like 30 years ago, if you worked in financial services, you probably worked at Merrill Lynch or a big bank or something, and you had coworkers, and you went to work, and there were 400 people in the building. We don't have that now. So we have social media, which sucks. (laughs) And then we have stuff like this where, hey, get out of your house for two days, meet people in your exact same role or situation from another state, another whatever – and just exchange. What are you doing? This is what I'm doing. That that is life changing. And mm-hmm. I've changed my life by pe- meeting certain people at certain events, including Barry Ritholtz. So um, check out futureproof.advisorcircle.com. Uh, if you work in the industry and you want to up your career, that's like a really easy and fun way to do it. I just want to say to you guys, I love you and thank you for sharing your platform with us. Oh, guys, it was Michael great. Batnick, the TRB. I say, by the way, he, you don't watch CNBC's Fast Money, but I would yes, say I a few times a month I will <laughs> yeah, reference the outs. TRB. I will say, you know, the TRB said this today. I do watch it though, and I just like saying the, the TRB. In front of TRB. That's I miss you guys. The, I was on the like. We're we gonna pretend that I wasn't like a seven-year castmate, Josh. On Fast Money, Josh. I'm not pretending anything. <laughs> All right. So of course I watch. I mean, you know, there's no reason to. You got other things going Wait, on. Wait, will you explain one thing? Um, so your backdrop in your office, not the one in Midtown, the backdrop when you do remotes. From, I'm, I'm a th- yeah. What's going on there? It changes by the season. That's like, right. what was the inspiration? Just real quickly, because I'm sure remember you Remember when I was saying just a little while ago, people don't remember what you said. They remember how, they remember how you made them feel. Yeah. This is a very similar concept. What is the point of doing this if you're not going to stand out? What is the point of being another guy with a suit and a tie in front of a bookshelf with books that you've never read? Like, like in other words, like if you're doing this, like really do it and express yourself and be genuine, be your real self. And my real self is a little bit more whimsical than most of the people that appear on financial television. And uh, I think our audience appreciates that about me and they're maybe a little scratching their head, like, what the hell is going on there? But you you become memorable as a result. So within reason, if you can make people smile and feel good, that's great. And if you can make people visually remember you, um, even better. Kindred so. spirits. I'm with TR, I'm with the TRB. I We're have the same spice philosophy. Up your remote backdrop, though. Guy's got like a, a computer that's turned around backwards. He's <laughs> got beige. He's got an SAT book. He's got a practice SAT book that's four Before inches we get out of here, here, I have a practice SAT <laughs> a book. square box. I have it's a thesaurus. I have... I have one axe for you. I have, I have seven short book. plays that's for him, young that's actors. That's him whimsical. All right. And hockey stars Michael of 1974. Michael Batnick. Bear statue. <laughs> Michael Batnick, Josh Brown of the compound. We'd like to think we are your friends. You are. Uh, we, we love on the tape. Spirits. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.